You're listening to Active Vegetarian, episode 72. Hello and welcome to the Active Vegetarian Show, the plant-based eater's guide to fitness, nutrition, and lifestyle. To discover how to fit healthy plant-based eating into your life and for practical fitness advice, visit us at activevegetarian.com. We're your hosts, Nikki and Susanna, so let's get started. On today's episode, we have a guest who has dedicated over 20 years to the study of binge eating. Dr. Glenn Livingston is a psychologist and an author of a book titled Never Binge Again. He's here with us to share his personal story of overcoming binge eating and also how this experience has shaped his life and his career. So get ready for an insightful episode full of practical strategies that we can promise. Welcome to the show, Glenn. I'm very happy to have you here with us today. I'm not going to give too much away. I think you have an interesting story, so perhaps you can start by sharing some of it with us. I can. I can. So I'm not just a psychologist that works with overeaters. I, I had a very serious eating problem myself. I grew up in New York and I was in a family of 17 psychotherapists. If there's something broken in the household, we all joke that nobody knows how to fix it, but everybody knows how to ask it how it feels. And that's actually becomes a little important later. I, I'm six foot four and I'm reasonably muscular. And I figured out at a young age that if I worked out for two or three hours a day, that I could eat whatever I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I could, you know, two pizzas or a box of donuts or muffins or lattes or chocolate bars. I, just an unbelievable amount of food and calories, maybe um, maybe six, 7,000 calories a day, easy. And as I got older and I got married and I had responsibilities in my early 20s and I had patients, I was commuting two hours a day and I, I just didn't have time to work out for that that much that many hours a day. I could barely work out for two hours a week. Mm-hmm. And my metabolism slowed down a little bit and I, I started to gain weight because I couldn't stop thinking about food, I couldn't stop eating food and the volumes that I was eating them in. And being from a family of therapists, I figured that the problem must be not what I'm eating, but what's eating me. And I tried to figure out where was the hole in my heart? How could I love myself then? So I went to every psychologist you could imagine. I went to eating disorder specialists. I went to psychiatrists and took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. And I had a very soulful journey, but none of it really helped me to overcome the binge eating problem. I would get better for periods of time and then I would lose it and I would get worse and get heavier. And eventually, because I had a dual career, I, I don't have children and I never commuted, so I had a lot of time to work. I also consulted for Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 500 companies in the food industry. And they were paying me an awful lot of money to do these big studies. And I figured, let me do one for myself. And the days when the internet clicks were cheap and you could get visitors to your site really easily, I, over the course of about three and a half, four years, I got 40,000 people to take a survey. And the survey was about all of the different foods people struggled with and various elements of their life satisfaction and personality. And I found three really interesting things. One was that people who struggled with chocolate and 
that was my problem. I would always start my binges with chocolate, and then once I once I ate the chocolate, everything else would would come flooding in. But people who struggled with chocolate, like me, were generally feeling lonely or brokenhearted. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things tended to be feeling more stressed at work, and people who struggled with chewy, soft, starchy things like pizza or bagels or pasta, they tended to be stressed at home. These weren't perfect correlations by any stress of the imagination, but there was clearly a pattern. And being from a family of therapists, I went back and I asked my mom. I said, Mom, this is really interesting. You know, I struggle with chocolate, and I am kind of lonely and brokenhearted. I'm not really happy in the marriage. And But, Mom, do you know anything from my history, being a therapist and being my mother, that would correlate my struggle with chocolate to being lonely or brokenhearted or depressed or something like that? And, and she got this horrible look on her face. And she said, Glenn, honey, I do. And I'm so embarrassed, but when you were about one year old, my dad had just got out of prison a little bit ago. And I had adored him my whole life. I had no idea he was doing these things. And he was guilty. There was no two ways about it. He was guilty. And I was, I was devastated. On top of that, your father, my husband, was a captain in the army. And they were threatening to send him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. And basically, I was frozen with depression and fear. And when you would come running to me, wanting to be hugged or held, I didn't always have the wherewithal to do it, and I had a refrigerator on the floor, and I put a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator, and I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running over, crawling over to the refrigerator, you'd grab the Bosco, and you'd suck on the bottle, and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And that was the match that struck the fire. That was the, that was the pattern, that's where it all got set up. It's amazing that something like that can actually start so early in our age. So often we are very much unaware of it. We don't remember those moments back in our childhood. Yeah, and you don't remember because it, it was so early. Mm-hmm. But, but now here's the thing. If this were the movies, and if this were a typical psychological story, at that moment my mother and I would have had a good cry and a good hug, and I never would have had chocolate again. But that's not what happened. I mean, we, we did have a good cry and a good hug, and I felt more compassionate towards her, and I felt more compassionate towards myself. It was a good conversation to have. I forgave myself. So I was no longer as harsh on myself about the problem I was having. But the binge eating actually got worse, and I was eating more chocolate. And when I finally figured out what happened, I realized that it's like there was this voice in my head that said, hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Your mama didn't love you enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can figure out how to find the love of your life, you're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. And it's almost like it became, well, it's not almost like, it is like it became a justification for eating more. And what I learned from that was that when it comes to toxic pleasures, like, you know, chocolate or, I mean, there there were no chocolate bars in the Savannah. This This is a concentration of, sugar and oils and um, you know and drugs that really aren't available and I'm not saying that people can't have chocolate there are a lot of people who do well with chocolate a little bit now and then especially the dark chocolates but they these foods have a life of their own once once the match is struck it doesn't matter so much who's responsible 
what matters is that there's a raging fire and you have to be a fireman, not a detective or a psychologist. You have to figure out how to put out the fire. And it turns out that putting out the fire has more to do with disempowering that irrational voice of justification that turns that loneliness or brokenheartedness or whatever the emotional upset is into a binge. That it's it's lying to you, right? Like it's it's kind of crazy to think that I should eat chocolate until I find the love of my life because that that could be a lifetime endeavor. That could be um, it certainly could be something that takes five or ten years, or you could do a lot of damage with a lot of chocolate between <laughs> between between now and then. And I found it to be easier to examine that that voice. Here's how I wound up doing it. I was looking into some alternative addiction treatment literature because I was coming out of Overeaters Anonymous at the time and it, it didn't really work for me. It was making things worse. And I actually found out that the only two scientifically controlled studies for the 12-step programs showed that they either were at parity or worse than doing nothing at all. And that really scared me. So I was reading alternatives to 12-step approaches and I ran across a guy named Jack Trimpey from Rational Recovery, and what he said changed my, the, my whole paradigm. I mean, it was after almost 30 years of struggling to figure out how to fill that chocolate hole in my heart. He said, you can't fill, you, you can't love yourself then. You can't love yourself out of an addiction because the seed of an addiction is in the lizard brain. And Can you say it again? The seed of an addiction is... It's in the lizard brain. Okay. It's in the, the earliest evolutionary structures that we have, the, mm -hmm. the brainstem. All right. It, what happens in an addiction is that the substance, whatever it is, it, provi it provides too strong a hit of pleasure to the survival mechanisms that evolve for other purposes. So, for example, there are billions of dollars, and I can tell you as an insider, having done a lot of research with these companies, there are billions of dollars that go into engineering hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and salt and excitotoxins to stimulate that pleasure center. They, they're looking for your bliss point. They, they want to give you maximum pleasure, but they're not putting the nutrients into these products to really give you the Satisfaction. satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you just want more. And that's why everybody's out looking for love at the bottom of bag, bags and boxes and containers. And then there are billions of dollars that go into advertising it in a way that makes you think that you can't live without it or that, it, or that it's genuinely healthy. I, I worked with the VP of a major food bar manufacturer, and he told me that their pivotal insight for profit was when they decided to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead, right? And so, and so they made this really vibrant, colorful packaging and with a diversity of colors. And if you look at the relationship between color and nutrition in nature, if you have a big salad with beets and carrots and cabbage and romaine lettuce and blueberries and a variety of different colors, you're, you're getting a variety of nutrition and minerals that you need. So there's a reason that we are evolutionary attra evolutionarily attracted to so much color and a diversity of color. But basically the 
food companies are faking us out with that because that, that nutrition isn't there. And then most people think that advertising doesn't impact them, but the studies show that advertising impacts you more when you think it doesn't impact you because mm-hmm. so, so, your sales resistance is down. And, and then you've got the addiction treatment industry telling you that you can't resist even if you want to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time. You put those all three together, and it's the perfect storm of incredible force coming at you to um, you know, basically ensure that these foods have a life of their own. Right. So basically explaining it this way allows us to understand how addicting food is today and in our society that it actually became a drug. Yes. Yes, no, and, and the more you can gravitate back to like whole natural rape for our plant-based foods, the, the better the better you do. There's no question about that. I, m- my book is diagnostic. I work with people on all different diets, but uh, personally, that's what I landed at. The question is, how do you get there? Mm-hmm. And what I figured out after having read that book by Jack Trimpey was that there, there's no love in the lizard brain. When the lizard brain looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? It's eat, mate, or kill. There, there's no concern for family members, there's no um, interest in society, or religion, or spirituality, or long-term goals, or art, or music, or anything that we think of that makes us uniquely human. It's just, it's just eat, mate, or kill. And when you look at all the animal studies about what happens if you stimulate the pleasure center in the lizard brain, you, you put an electrode in those in those pleasure centers, which I don't think was actually ethical for you know for the animals, but these studies were done. And mammals will ignore their survival needs in order to press a lever that stimulates that that center of the brain thousands of times a day. A starving rat will ignore its food and just press the lever thousands of times a day. A mother rat will ignore its young and press the lever thousands of times a day. They'll they'll cross over painful electrical grids to get to the lever. Mm. Um, When you have a pleasure button that's that strong, it it seems like life itself is dependent upon it. It's, It's hijacking the survival drive, for lack of a better word. And so you need something very, very primitive to wake yourself up and put yourself back into your upper brain, your neocortex, where all of your human memories and goals and aspirations live. And this is a little embarrassing. This is what finally worked for me. But, you know, as a sophisticated psychologist, for me to be up here talking about this, you're going to say, what's wrong with this guy? But this is what worked. I decided that I had a pig inside of me, not a real pig, but it's just, a con- just a concept. Right. My, liz- my lizard brain was going to be my pig. And I decided that I was going to draw really clear lines in the sand. I'll talk about why it's important to have very bright lines as opposed to guidelines. I would draw a line in the sand that would say something like, I will never eat chocolate Monday to Friday again. I only ever have chocolate on Saturday and Sunday again. And that if I heard any little voice in my head that said it was okay to have chocolate on a Wednesday, for example, you could start tomorrow, you did a lot of exercise today, or... You know, G. Glenn, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, and a cocoa bean grows on a plant, so therefore chocolate's a vegetable. Whatsoever, that was going to be pig squeal. The chocolate itself was going to be pig slop. And when I heard that voice in my head, I would say, well, I don't need pig slop, but I don't know the farm animals tell me what to do. 
And as crazy as it sounds, as primitive as that is, as crude as it is for a sophisticated psychologist to be talking about, that's what would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me those extra microseconds that I needed to make the right decision. And it, it wasn't a miracle, but slowly but surely, I inched my way back to control. I, I, I would experiment with different types of rules and ways of phrasing the rules and coming up with different conditional phrases and you know, I eventually came up with a system for putting it all together. I kept a journal for a lot of years, but basically my experience of powerlessness and hopelessness disappeared and I started to have hope and enthusiasm and power and the weight started to come off and you know, my triglycerides dropped down to a normal level. They've been, they've been above a thousand at one point and the doctors were telling me I was going to die soon. And um, I, I, I also found that the mental obsession started to lift. I wasn't constantly thinking about food or how to recover from eating what I'd eaten the last day. And my, my body was just not at war with food as much. And I, as a result, had more presence of mind. I felt like my relationships were getting better and not my marriage, but my other relationships we're getting better, and um, that's that's why I'm up here talking about this pig inside me after all these years. So, Glenn, you mentioned earlier that binge eating can start very early in our childhood. How important is it for us to really figure out the root cause behind this pattern? It's not really that important. Mm-hmm. It, it's as a matter of fact, there's an argument to be made that you're making it worse by trying to do that too much. I, mean, I, I think you can have conversations about food and what happened in your upbringing and why you have these patterns, and it will benefit you psychologically in a bunch of different ways. But I don't think it has anything to do with fixing the problem. Okay. When you ask, why can't I stop eating? What happened to me? Why can't I stop eating? You're actually programming your brain to collect evidence that you can't stop eating. See, the questions that we ask determine the evidence that we collect. And if you're out there collecting evidence that you can't stop eating, guess what? You're gonna develop a failure identity. You're gonna believe before you know it that you can't stop eating. If you ask, how can I stop instead? You're gonna collect evidence that you can stop. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really do think we need a paradigm shift and we need to start thinking about how we can stop. I have noticed that binge eating is a very common struggle for women and men who have repeated history of dieting and restricting their calories in an unhealthy way. Can you explain the correlation between these two? I think, Susanna, the reason for that is it it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. If there are periods where an organism is exposed to a scarcity of nutrients and calories, then as soon as those nutrient and calories are available, it would make sense that there is a mechanism in the brain that wanted us to hoard it. And I, I think this is the only explanation for why when so many binge eaters are triggered by feeling too full. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Otherwise, if we were too full, we'd want to stop. But if you put your body through periods of scarcity, and then all of a sudden you signal your body that, oh, there's a lot of food available, it would make sense that there's something in the brain that says, oh my God, you better get as much as possible. And the practical implication of this is that the solution to binge eating, in in my experience, is not a week of fasting on green juice. The the solution to binge eating is regular sustained nutrition and calories 
you can have a small caloric deficit that helps you lose one or two pounds a week. But I, I don't like when people are trying to lose weight faster because I've almost inevitably seen them bounce back. Mm-hmm. And, and it is very possible. See, this, this is a rules-based approach, and I, there are proponents of non-rules-based approaches out there. And they say they're scared that people are going to restrict too much. And, and there's a point that they're making, but I'm not arguing for restriction. I don't want you to make rules which put you in a severe caloric or nutritional deficit. There are some rules that your body can't follow. You can never make a rule that says, I will never pee again, because your body's gonna, you know, your body and your bladder are going to change your mind before you know it. So the short answer is yes. The practical implication is eat breakfast the morning after a binge. Get on a regular, sustained, healthy nutritional regimen that's just a you know, a few hundred calories below what you need if you need to lose weight or a few hundred calories above what you need if you need to gain weight. And your um, your urges to binge will gradually start to dissipate. Let me restate what you just said because I believe this is an important piece of advice. A crucial part of recovery is eating sufficient amount of high-quality, nutrient-dense whole foods. I believe that there's an authentic need behind every craving. And so, for example, for me, when I was craving chocolate, I started to force myself to have a banana smoothie with, um, with kale instead. Mm-hmm. And at, at first, I thought it was ridiculous. At first, I said, oh, come on, hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. But very gradually, I started to realize that although I wasn't getting high with the banana smoothie the way that I was getting high with chocolate, and I... I do think that with these industrial foods, that there's a there's a high that we're looking for. I don't think we're just eating for comfort. I think we're looking to get high with food, because they, there are artificial concentrations of pleasure that don't exist in nature, and another another name for that is a drug. And I wouldn't get that high, but I wouldn't get the low either. I would describe it as more of a contentment. The craving would go away. I would have the energy that I was seeking but it wasn't a manic energy, it was a very even energy without the crash that you know comes from having the chocolate bar later on. So, um, yeah, and, and you're not supposed to believe me, you're just supposed to let it happen over time, let your survival drive readjust. There's a phenomenon called down-regulation and up-regulation. Down-regulation means that if you stop having, you know, apples and bananas and oranges and you eat you know chocolate and candy instead on a regular basis your nervous system and your taste buds are going to down regulate to the sensation of sweet and so if you go to have an apple after you've been having a chocolate bar every day for a while it's not going to taste nearly as sweet it's kind of like i once lived underneath the subway in astoria queens and I thought to myself at first, how am I ever going to sleep? But 10 days later, I didn't even hear the subway. When your nervous system is presented with a supersized stimulus repeatedly, it down-regulates so that it's not overwhelmed. This can get to the point with pleasurable foods that you feel like it's like there's no pleasure unless you do have the chocolate. You might even experience a psychological absence of pleasure, which they call anhedonia, where you feel like you just need the chocolate to feel normal. 
It's like you experience displeasure in the absence of the of the industrial substance. But and for that reason, your pig will tell you that you can't quit this or you can't control it because you're going to be tortured forever. You really want to be tortured and deprived forever. But the pig is lying. You won't be tortured and deprived forever. Your body will change very quickly. I think the research says within 46 weeks, your taste buds should double in sensitivity. It's, it, it's amazing how quickly the body recovers in those situations, but you have to get through that, that initial period. And you should start to feel a little difference after about 100 hours. You might be 100 hours for, from freedom, but hardly anybody's willing to go that 100 hours to find out. And so they live with the pig telling them that it's going to be unpleasant and torture forever. And they get into this downward cycle that really leads nowhere. So right. I have experienced that sometimes these urges for certain foods are so strong that they often overpower that rational mind of ours. We might not be able to stop ourselves on time and resist those temptations to binge eat. How do we develop the power to pause long enough so we can observe what's going on and really stop those urges before it's too late? Any suggestions? Yeah, well, one technique is the main technique that I just described. Mm -hmm. But the other thing to recognize is that the urge to binge, it's really a flight or a fight or flight response. It's an emergency signal generated by the by the lizard brain by the lower brain and for that reason most techniques that would work to activate the sympathetic nervous system and and like deactivate the parasympathetic nervous system i, I think i have that right one of the the sympathetic nervous system slows us down and calms us down it's like deep breathing or right. muscular relaxation so if you tense up all your muscles and you take a deep breath and then you let it all go and you do that again and you let it all go or you can get yourself to go for a walk or you can go outside and breathe some fresh air or you can meditate or do some yoga um, a lot of the things that have sounded kind of hokey there's now some science to document why that that actually does work the other thing is to focus on rules instead of guidelines and the reason for that is that every one of those fight or flight responses requires some willpower to get through. The willpower is fatigued by decision making. Willpower is not like an on and off switch that some people have and some people don't. It's more like gas in your tank. And what burns that tank, what burns that gas is every decision that you have to make throughout the day, not just food decisions people have trouble resisting marshmallows after they do math problems. Any, any of that brain power that you can eliminate the necessity for by making your decisions beforehand is extraordinarily helpful. A shortcut for thinking about this is that character trumps willpower. So, for example, when I'm saying I will never have chocolate Monday to Friday again, what I'm really saying is I've made a decision, a character decision, to be the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate during the week. And therefore, I don't have to make a chocolate decision every time in front of, I'm in front of a chocolate bar on a weekday. We have built these character statements into our personalities without knowing it for the entirety of our lives. If you think about it, 
when you walk into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress hasn't seen her tip and she says, I'll be right back. I just have to get your menu. And there's no window. There's no security camera. There's nobody up front and nobody would see you take that $20 bill. Personally, nobody that I've talked to has said that they would take that $20 bill. And I'll ask them why. They'll say, well, that woman worked hard for her money and I'm not a thief. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, so as a matter of character, that's not even a decision for you. You don't have to exercise willpower not to take that $20 bill. You just know the kind of person you are. And similarly, we, you know, we, don't, we don't run up and kiss attractive strangers in the street just because we have an urge to do so. We don't, we don't kick policemen in the tush. We, we know who we are in this society, who we want to be in this world. And if you take a little time and think through the foods that are bothering you and make very specific rules to uh, define what's healthy and the kind of person you want to become around that food, then you're going to eliminate willpower. You're not going to be, you're not going to have to make a decision in the middle of the flight and fight or flight response. You can rely, rely on your character instead. All right. So basically sitting down with yourself and figuring out set of rules for when the cravings come on or the feelings come on, knowing exactly what your plan of action is going to be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I would start with one rule. I would would ask myself what, and I wouldn't worry about weight loss to start with, but just start with one rule and ask myself, what's my most significant trigger food or behavior? And Maybe it's, maybe it's not something that restricts food at all. Maybe it's, well, gee, I, I will never eat in the car again, or I won't eat standing up again. Or maybe it's something that just supports mindfulness, like I'll always put my fork down between bites, mm-hmm. or, or I'll always wait five minutes and walk around before going back for seconds, something like that. All right. Glenn, I know that you've been helping people overcome binge eating and overeating for a couple of decades now. You wrote a book about it. Is it your mission in life uh, to help others experience food freedom? Susanna, that's my mission in life. I, I want to help a million people a year stop overeating. You know, show them that it's possible to have the integrity to step outside of this crazy system that's developed and eat healthy, take care of yourself, let them see the results in you, be the change that you want to see in the world, and let them follow along. It's, it's the nicest gift you could give them. Wonderful. And for any listeners who would like to reach out to you for additional help and support, what would be the best way to go about it? Like I said, I want you to go to neverbingeagain.com. Neverbingeagain.com. Okay. Click the big red free bonus button and sign up for the reader bonuses. You'll get a free copy of the book in digital format, Kindle, Nook, or PDF. You will get recordings of coaching sessions that I've done so that you can hear how this is implemented. And the other thing we'll give you is a set of food plan starter templates. So no matter what your dietary philosophy is, whether it's you know, a whole foods plant-based like, um, like Susanna and I, or if you're eating low-carb or paleolithic or... Really, anything that you're reading will show you what some of the rules are that some people have utilized to frame those dietary philosophies. And we ask you to then customize those rules yourself because it, we want you to take responsibility for what you believe is healthy. I don't want to tell you what to eat because I'm not a medical doctor or a nutritionist or anything like that. I'm, I'm a psychologist. Okay. It's, it's at um, neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. 
and sign up for the reader bonuses. If you really need to contact me directly, you can use the um, use the contact function there also. That gets to me eventually after it gets to my customer service people. So neverbingeagain.com. Excellent. Well, I have learned a lot in this past half an hour. You have shared some insightful ideas and gave us really hope that there is a way out of the food prison for those who are ready to step out and experience the full beauty of life. So thank you very much, Glenn, for your time and your energy and all the work you put out there to help others. And thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Active Vegetarian Show, the plant-based eater's guide to fitness, nutrition, and lifestyle. For more information, including recipes, nutritional advice, fitness tips, and coaching, please stop by activevegetarian.com. Until then, live active, live healthy, and enjoy life.